podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here as always, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to make this quick because we have a great episode for you, one I know you're going to love, and I really just want to give you the goods. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about a subject that is kind of near and dear to our heart. We do this a lot, and it's the idea of creativity. But We're looking at it in a slightly different manner. If you think about the idea of creativity, being creative, those moments when you're expressing your creativity, it often brings about emotions such as joy and pride, exhilaration, and we love that feeling of either creating something out of nothing or really just thinking about what could be. But here's the thing. New research from our guest shows that although we think positively about this creativity, when it really comes down to taking action on it, oftentimes we struggle to accept these new ideas and we revert to the old, stale way of doing it. Our guest this week is Jennifer Mueller. And Jennifer is the author of the new book, Creative Change, Why We Resist It, How We Can Embrace It. And in this episode and in her book, what Jennifer did is she looked at a lot of corporate CEOs, top executives, and other business leaders. And what she found, no surprise, is that they want creativity. They need real innovation in order to thrive in a competitive world, and they ask for it. But through her research, she realized that oftentimes these business leaders are rejecting creative solutions and choosing to embrace the familiar. So we're going to be talking about different ideas about how to embrace that creativity. And can we actually utilize our mindset to turn on or off this idea of creativity and embracing it in an instant? Just a little bit more about Jennifer. As I mentioned, she's the author of this book. She also holds a doctorate in social psychology and has taught at top business schools such as Wharton, Yale, and NYU. She currently serves on the faculty at the University of San Diego, and she lives in Solana Beach, California. Sounds nice. So we're going to turn it over here to Jennifer. Hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget, smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes and sign up for the newsletter bottom right-hand corner. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to tell a friend you are enjoying Smart People Podcast. Well, Jennifer, I want to say first on this Friday evening, thanks so much for taking the time out of your week to be on the show. I'm really looking forward to it. I am too. Thank you. So you've written this book, just came out a few days ago, Creative Change. How's that going for you? <laughs> How's Creative Change going for me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. you know, Creative Change is... It's really tough. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I when I see examples of it, it's usually like real creative change. When people are really thinking about changing their definitions of the world, mm -hmm. usually it's very angsty. I mean, the most recent definition I was reading the New York Times this morning op-ed about the women's march. And the this idea that within the Women's March, it started off as, you know, I don't know who was organizing it. And then all of a sudden, certain groups became involved. And they started explaining it like, you know, there were the African-American groups and the, uh, you know, white women groups or whatever groups. And um, then the sex worker groups and all these groups. And they started to compete with one another about who was owning it. And the article was basically about, but let's, sh the, if the Democrats want to survive, they've got to shift from groups and categories to women, you know, mm. you're a woman, you're not a group, you're not a black woman or a brown woman or a white woman, you're a 
woman. Right, right. <laughs> and and it's that kind of mind shift from groups and categories of people to issues and 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 un- unity and inclusiveness that that the the article talked about, and that's a creative change. And it mm-hmm. usually comes about as something that feels really weird and is opposite what you believed before. And it has to do with change in your thinking, not just change in what you do, even though sometimes what you do can change your thinking because you're like, wait a minute, we're all working, walking together. Maybe we're all one. You know? Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter what group you're from. Maybe we all are sharing this moment together. Um, and that's, that's so creative changes everywhere. And I think that we haven't labeled it like that because there are changes without creative change. Like you, for example, uh, you know, you might have certain things you believe you should do in your life. Like maybe, I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. lose weight, Sure, you know? And so you have a whole definition of what that's like and you know how to do it. And why don't you do it when you want to do it? Well, habits, you kind of get in your own way, but you don't have to change your thinking to do it. Hmm. You know, you just have to change your behavior to do it. <laughs> so is the, is the difference between kind of our, our standard change and creative change, you first really have to be looking at things completely differently. You have to be working on solving problems or, or uh, getting new results in a way that really you've never thought of before. Is that what you're going for there? Kind of. You know, it's it's this idea that we have this perspective and definitions about the way we believe the world is. And creative change is when we shift that, maybe because somebody we don't agree with tells us something different and we sit with them. We really sit in the conversation and we start to come around, you know what I'm saying? Okay, mm-hmm. I guess I could see that point of view. Um, or, or maybe it's just something that we're doing that we believe. Um, there was a conversation I had with a business professional who believed that he wanted to hire people with experience and with a college degree. And somebody said, why are you doing that? There's all these people who have amazing skills and they will bleed for you because they really want the shot. You know, they really want a chance. And so he said, oh yeah, right. I'll prove you wrong. And the prove you wrong turned into this fabulous success and completely changed the way he thinks about hiring now. Mm. And that was a creative change. So, so sometimes you've got to just do stuff you don't agree with, listen to people you don't agree with. But the point is you change your thinking and that's hard to do. It is. And I want to, I want to get into that because as you know, we talked about and listeners know, I do a lot of work with Franklin Covey. And one of the things we say is, is it easier or hard to change your thought process? And everyone, okay, it's hard. <laughs> is it easier or hard to change someone else's? Well, it's really hard. And now how about changing multiple people or a group or a company? I mean, it's damn near impossible. And so I definitely want to get into, you being a psychologist, how we <laughs> tap into our brain and make those changes to hopefully accomplish and achieve more of what we want. But first- yeah. What, you're a psychologist. I love psychology in general. I know a lot of people listening do. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you landed in what I believe to be the most interesting category of all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, how did you, I think I just wanted to um, find a job where I could, I don't know, not have a boss. Mm. You know, I don't want a boss. I just want to do my thing. Mm-hmm. And academia allows for that. Um, and so when I first started off, though, out, out in academia, I was interested in health psychology. And actually, truth be told, I studied marriage. Huh. And what I learned in my early 20s is if you study marriage and you go on a date and the guy asks you what you do and oh. you say you're a psychologist, that's just that falls flat. But then he says, oh, uh, what do you study? And then you say marriage. That's like, I mean, the date is like killed. Do you yeah. know what I mean? No, I, so- <laughs> I, I actually, I have to tell you, I was, as you were, you were explaining that, I'm thinking about my dating days and I swear if I put myself in this position, if we would be sitting across the dinner table and you said, uh, you know, a psychologist, I'd be like, oh, this is amazing. Going to be the best conversation ever. And then yeah. you said marriage, every red flag in the book would go up and I'd be like, yeah, it's probably <laughs> exactly. not worth it. 
<laughs> exactly. So, so yeah. So, so you know, I, I felt like there were many reasons why I wanted to get out of that business, but one that was one of them. And I had this chance to work with this amazing woman named Teresa Mabule. She is the mother of all creativity research, and she was at Harvard Business School, and I was a little Brandeis student. And uh, the discussion, as I remember it, was Joan Tucker, my advisor, then looking at me and saying, "You know, Jen, um, uh, Teresa's looking to work with somebody. Uh, she doesn't have much money, and none of the Harvard students will work for so little." But I told her, you'd be perfect for the mm. job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I got this job working with her and then fell in love with this field of creativity, partially because I think we're so you, you were so in love with it, you know? And one of the things that you notice about marriage is that when people are in love, part of what makes them feel in love is newness and that uncertainty and that not knowing. Yeah. You know? So yeah. wait, what happens when it starts to get certain? Well, they say if you really want to rekindle that feeling that you find new things to do together, you know? So in other words, you know, creativity and doing creative things is how you enrich your marriage. Mm. Um, but, But what I learned about creativity is that's why we love creativity because it's unknown. Because sometimes, you know, we talk about uncertainty as something, oh, we hate, we don't like it, uncertainty, we're fearful, get away. But the truth is we're also passionately crazy in love with it. Like it makes our lives better to not know. Yes. Because we can hope for something. And and then we start to imagine what it would be like. I mean, remember those days when you were first dating your wife or spouse or whatever, and um, you, you, you didn't know if she was actually going to return your call. Mm-hmm. You she know? didn't. And she did. Oh, she did. <laughs> not at first. <laughs> but anyways, I really don't want to go down that path. We're happy there. It's about, all good. Right. But, but, you know, so, but, but that then increased your interest, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so it's that kind of love we have with creativity. And so the, the people in my field have been talking about that for years. And what they've been talking about is how to generate these ideas that are creative. And that's great and wonderful. But they haven't been talking about the other side, which is the uncertainty people have about these ideas. But the great news is that when you talked about it first, you're in Franklin Covey and you're like, how do you change your own mind? How do you change other people's minds? Mm-hmm. How do you change your corporation's minds? And people are like, oh my God, right. this is impossible. The great news is that people do love creativity and they do love renewal and novelty because it can add to their lives and make the world wonderful. Hmm. And as long as we have that, as long as that exists, then there's the possibility of changing people's minds because what they discover when they do is that life isn't boring. Right. You know, know? it it reminds me of, I heard somebody once say, people always crave stability, but the thing, and you kind of said it, you know, the thing that makes life great is instability and not knowing what's around the corner. And at first you, eh, maybe, but then they said, imagine if you knew what was going to happen before everything happened. It would literally be awful. It would be the worst (laughs) thing ever. It would be the worst thing ever. I mean, this must be how, and some billionaires and some kings describe, you know, if you look at their psychology, they describe this, like, because when people like them, they figure it's like almost because of their, with their money or, you know, they can't, they don't have that level of uncertainty and not knowing, or at least their uncertainty is around not knowing if the person is liking them or their money. And, but if you don't have that, it frees you up to not know. And that not knowing when the good thing you want happens is just this wonderful reward versus they never get that. Hmm. If you are a creative and you also have this kind of human baseline of fear, which we all have the survival (laughs) instinct, how do you find the balance? You know, because it's, you want to be creative, but then you'll think about it, think of all the things that could go wrong and then just stop. And I think that's at the basis of a lot of what you've seen. Yeah. I mean, I think what the work, the reason why the work really became successful was it validated a lot of creatives, like thinking like, wait a minute, that rejection I just got was so extreme. Like you didn't get the, well, that's interesting. Not for us. You got the, that's stupid. Why would you ever do that kind of rejection? And what, what, what my work suggests is that the reason why those reactions are extreme is because uncertainty makes emotions more extreme. So when that decision maker who rejected you is uncertain, their reaction is going to be stronger 
than if they're just rejecting you and they're just kind of bored and it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, no hard feelings. And so what creative people are experiencing is that they're getting this negativity and it's not about them. It's about the way the ideas they have make others feel. It's not even about their ideas. It's that creative ideas create this uncertainty. If you're an expert in something and you are the expert and somebody comes along with a new idea that maybe, you know, goes against what you say, if you embrace that idea, guess what? You're no longer expert. (laughs) Oh, so is it a whole protection of ego type thing? I think that's part of it. I don't think that's front and center because Mm. I think it's also the way experts use their expertise. I literally have started to think that experts don't know how to use their expertise when they encounter the new. They just don't know what to do. Like, do they compare what they know to what this new thing is? That's kind of dumb. If it's new, it's different than what you know. It's different than the paradigm, you know? Mm -hmm. So how do you know if it's good? And I think that experts are really struggling with that and they haven't read my book and they haven't thought about kind of that side of things. And I think that once they start to see that, and once they see that their job is not to know the answers, but to bring something into the world that allows for potentially a dialogue, just something beyond this, this isn't the end all be all result. Any creative idea has problems, but the point is, is it going to enrich the world by bringing it into the world and, and letting it through? And if so, that's why you say yes. And meaning all this get to get to back to your point of, you know, being a creative and feeling nervous and anxious. And the goal of the book is really to speak to both sides because it's not just the creative, it's the gatekeeper. They're nervous and they're anxious too. That decision maker in an organization, they may not talk about it like this, but it's very stressful to put your career on the line for an idea that you have no evidence will work. Mm. It's very stressful. I'm really interested in the research that you put into it. How did you go about researching this topic, coming up with the thesis, if you will, supporting it? I mean, were you in the trenches talking to business owners? Was it a different group you were talking to? Yeah, I started trying to talk to business owners, but the conversations were wacky. Like I didn't get anything. I'll get, I'd get weird double talk, double speak. Like this one executive I spoke with was a manager in a pharma. And I said, so what is, what world does creativity play in your everyday life? And he looked at me and he kind of gave me this sneer and he said, I'm not an artist. You know, Mm. I have to save people's lives. If I make a mistake or do something wacky, I could kill a patient and we'd have a lawsuit. And so I remember backpedaling and thinking, oh, I didn't mean that for that to be a complicated question. So I said, "Um, so, okay, creativity doesn't play a role in your everyday work. I get it. And he said, you know what? I take offense to that. If I'm not innovative and saving people's lives, you know, uh, people, you know, people could die if I don't try to innovate and push the envelope. And I sat back and thought, what the heck did I just, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And that's the problem. When you talk to executives, they'll say things like, oh, creativity? Why do I care about creativity? I just want great ideas. Or they'll say, um, yeah, creativity is all well and good, but we want to be profitable and you know, meet with our strategy and our fees- you know, we want ideas that are feasible. And so creativity, it's almost like you can't get people to admit they hate it. They'll, at best, they'll say it's irrelevant. Um. And so what I did was I had to go into the laboratory and I had to look at what people's reaction times were to associating words like creative with words, well, like peace, love, or heaven, or words like vomit, (laughs) you know, to kind of get at these implicit beliefs. So what we started to do was we just started bringing undergrads into the laboratory and we asked them, do you love creativity? And they all said, yes. And then we gave them this reaction time test and they all associated creativity with words like heaven and it was all good. And, um, except by the way, for engineering students, <laughs> they, they associated words like creativity with words like vomit. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, but when we took the students into the lab and we gave them a, like a, like a mindset task, like a priming task. So one of the things we had them do was we had them write, um, an essay to the solution or write about the following statement. Um, for every problem, there's one best solution. Or for every problem, there are multiple solutions. And we randomly assign which, which who got the one best solution versus multiple solutions essay to write. And then we asked them, do you like creativity? And we measured their reaction time tests on this uh, 
this, this, what's called an implicit attitude test. And what we found is when people wrote an essay that there are multiple possible solutions, they said they love creativity and they associated creativity with words like heaven and peace. Um, and when they substantiated the statement, there's only one best solution, they said they loved creativity and they associated creativity with vomit and rotten and hell. And they saw a creative idea and they said that wasn't so creative. Oh. And these were undergrad, these were like liberal arts students. So these weren't, you know, these were, these are the people who you'd expect to be a pretty conservative test of this. Right. You know, and since then we've gone into organizations and we've asked people with decision-making authority because we think this one best solution, this kind of mindset, um, we think it's really prevalent. And we think one of the reasons why it's really prevalent is because people want to have certainty and they want to be correct in their decisions and they want to have best practices and they want to know how to implement things and they want to make decisions that they can justify to their bosses. And so what we found was merely placing a person in a role to allocate money, merely doing that, pushed people towards this one best solution kind of mindset. And as a result, when they're in that role, they have a harder time seeing value in new ideas relative to the rest of us when we're not worried about, you know, allocating resources and being correct. Do you ever find or would you say that it's really just a matter of the average person being risk averse? When it comes to creative ideas, there are some that are risky for us, you know, really. And and there's some that just you know, like whether or not you buy some new product that doesn't cost much, but you think would be fun, you know, that's not real risk, right? That's just enjoyment. That's just, you're, you're exploring. I do think that the, the issue that I've seen is that people can be risk averse depending upon this mindset that they're in. So if they're in a mindset where they need to solve a problem, they need to do it now, they have to have the right solution. You're going to work. You want to get there fast. You're not willing to make an error that in that moment, in that mindset, Yes. But there's another mindset, which is more about curiosity and exploring. And it's not so much about framing it like risk. It's more framing it like, huh, I just don't know. That's interesting. Let's look at that. Oh, I wonder what that means. And so it's less about being right and being accurate and correct and more about opening up the possibility to find something that you didn't know before. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers delicious, quality food, courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S., right to your door, supporting a more sustainable food system and setting the highest standards for ingredients. Plus, with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, you can be sure that every ingredient in your delivery will arrive ready to cook, or they'll make it right. It's no wonder that they are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Check it out. I've used Blue Apron and I absolutely love it. I'm not the best cook, but Blue Apron makes it so easy. Let's get right to the good stuff. Here are some of the meals available in April. Spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salata. Sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice parmesan crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli and baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad sounds amazing right here's what you have to do check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash smart people you'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with blue apron so don't wait that's blueapron.com slash smart people. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now back to the episode. So would you say the people who do this best, I mean, who have the ability to think creatively, maybe look at that and make change based on it, are those that can disassociate the outcome with their self-worth? Hmm. Very interesting. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I know when you look at artists and when you look at um, people generating these ideas, um, what we find is that they tend to value new ideas in part because they're a reflection of what the culture values. You know, we all Americans, we want to be distinctive. We want to be unique. And, um, and so when we have unique ideas, it's part of who we are. So it's hard to disentangle that for many people. It gets us into trouble sometimes, too. But I think that – but when you're evaluating whether or not you want to use a product and you're on the other side of things, it's not so much about self-worth in that sense that I've seen. It might be, but I don't know, but I don't see it that way. In that case, I see it kind of like, you know, I just want to make – I just want to do what's right. I want to make a good decision. Right. And well, the way you make a good decision is you just have data that people have used before, but that means something's vetted and a lot of people have used it, and it might not be that new. Right. I mean, I go back to the example you gave about, say, you go into this role where you have to distribute money or whatever it might be. I've been in similar roles, and I could just put myself in it. If I'm in the wrong mindset, first of all, which oftentimes corporate world, a lot of pressures, it can put you in that mindset. Mm-hmm. I would think do the thing that I can convince my boss it was his idea so that mm. the results can be his results, good or bad. I don't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a solution in the book that I call the feedback pitch. And it's basically that. It's basically, you know, because the thing about a creative idea is you don't, it's new. So you don't really know people's objections to it yet. Mm. You know, you might might not be aware. There might be all sorts of reasons why this person would object to this idea. And, And so finding that out is important. And the second piece is kind of making them feel like it's their own, like you alluded to. So the feedback pitch is simply asking a person, hey, what do you think? Hearing all the reasons and then switching the conversation to ask for advice and collaborate with them to try to make the idea work in their view without, of course, sacrificing its uniqueness. Because sometimes they'll want, they'll say, look, why don't you just do what everybody else is doing? And that's not the point. Um, and there's something about, you know, just incorporating and sometimes small wording changes, sometimes very small details into the idea, and then giving it back to them later saying, look, your idea was great. It made my idea, this idea much better. What do you think? And then asking for a, for an, a yes. And it's that kind of, you know, jujitsu <laughs> that when it comes to a creative idea, it works much better than unilaterally selling and coming in with a hard sell and saying, look, here are the metrics and this is how many people love it. And the reason why is because any new idea stinks compared to the status quo in terms of the metrics. They will never look as good as the thing that's been around forever that everybody's using now. Yeah. Would you say that the general philosophy or idea of what you are discussing and what you're researching is creativity is the driver of innovation and positive change. However, we are not as receptive to creative ideas as we claim we are. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just yeah. wanted to, I just wanted to make sure because it is one of those tough areas. I think I understand where you go. Everyone thinks, well, I'm creative or I can be creative or yeah, you're going to put me in this role in the 21st century where if we're not growing and moving and shaking, then we're dying and all that stuff. And then yeah. it's even scarier when the top executives or whoever it might be are saying, yes, we need this. But the barrier is in everyone's inability to accept to- change, embrace change, look at it from a outside perspective? I think what it is in part is their curiosity is just shut down. You know, they want to know the answers. They don't, Um, they don't want to engage with the uncertainty in a productive way. You can, when people engage, when, when there's uncertainty, there's two things you can do. You can avoid it or or pretend to avoid it. And when this happens, decision makers feel very certain about the world. And who's really certain about the world? I mean, come on, you make a choice like this. You don't know for reals Um, because the status quo could change, you know, like a president could be elected. You never imagined could be elected Uh and change your complete worldview about, you know, what, whether the solution will work. Um, so yeah, so it's how people engage with uncertainty and curiosity means that on one hand, you don't want uncertainty, 
and you want to reduce it, but you're trying to reduce it in this really kind of positive way by en- engaging with it and trying to learn more about it and trying to figure out what it is that doesn't make sense. And it's that type of activity I see shut down in so many organizations because they want to know the answers and make an accurate, correct decision. And that's, I think, part of what the book tries to bring out again is how do you bring the sunlight in? How do you how, how do you help people understand decision makers themselves that, you know, wanting correct solutions in the course of choosing creative ideas is just going to harm your health. <laughs> you're right. just going to feel nervous and anxious and you're not going to help yourself or your spouse or anyone. And it turns out that if you go with your gut feel and accept you can't know, there's evidence you make money. Hmm. there's actual evidence uh, that you can make money. And so that's kind of chapter four that goes into how you disrupt your mindset from needing this correct solution to, you know, embracing the reality that you can't know. And then chapter five is really about, okay, so you have to pitch an idea to your boss. How do you do that by pitching sideways without evoking the status quo and making the status quo look great, meaning the solution that's already in place that everybody's using and loves right now? How do you how do you kind of de-emphasize that and and pitch ideas that are new? And then I go into how organizations can start to, you know, allow for either mistakes or corrections and, and also understand what people mean when they say creative. I think a lot of organizations, they say, oh, we want innovation. And everybody looks around all the employees and, and they say, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. We have all these ideas. And the, the, and the CEO says, see, we were so innovative. We did this amazing, innovative thing. Like, one example was um, ZZZQL. Have you heard of this? ZZZQL? Is that like NyQuil, but the sleep version? Yeah. Yes. Have you taken it? Have you um, used it? I, bel- I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Not sure. Um, so if you did, it's really expensive. It's a brand and it's Benadryl. It's like, it's just branded Benadryl. Seriously? It's brilliant. Yeah, totally. Seriously. Huh. That's what it is. So... It, it's actually kind of brilliant. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is. it's brilliant, but, but it's not, you know, what people, at least the average kind of person on the front lines might call creative, right? The, the line manager might call that incremental. Um, and a CEO might think, oh my God, this is a breakthrough product. It's really, really innovative. Of course, I don't think the sales are as good as they were when, before people realized they could get Benadryl for, you know, really cheap. Right. (laughs) But the point was that people at uh, Procter & Gamble were disagreeing about whether or not this thing was creative. So the point is that, you know, sometimes CEOs can dress up things as creative that other people don't think are. And it's recognizing those kinds of disconnects too, which can help you kind of figure out how to communicate and get on the same page about what you mean when you say creative. Yeah. Well, I want to go back chapter four. Yeah. I feel like there's something magical about what you were talking about there. How did you find or or what recommendations can you give or do you give in the book on how to let more of that light in? On how to turn on the part of your brain that is uniquely human to create and to uh, create fictional things that don't even exist yet without or or while suppressing all of the other things that are going on to prohibit you from doing so. Yeah. I think one of the big culprits, and you mentioned the word ego, and I love that word because for me, what it means is this focus on confidence. Have you noticed that lately people are obsessed with confidence? Yes. Obsessed. Like you don't have enough confidence. You need to be more confident. In my MBA classes, I ask them to do this exercise to get feedback and half the time they're not confident enough. And and I think to myself, you know, what does that even, what does that really mean? Because I think that we're conflating confidence with knowing the answers. Do you know what I mean? And what about being confident in asking questions? What about being confident in knowing a process? Not the answer, not the end result, but the process like you're going to go through. And relinquishing yourself of having to know the answers because nobody can know. And wouldn't it be wonderful if our organizations allowed for us to say the truth, which is nobody can know. This isn't something like a mistake I made. This is by choosing to go this direction. But what we can know is we can know a process of how we can learn more and be curious and use our questions to figure out what the truth is. Like, here's one metric. Okay, what does that mean? Why did you get that metric? Why are there so many Facebook likes? Huh? I wonder. Um, Let's put it on this platform. That 
you know, and test it out here. What's going on there? And it's it's that kind of a process that I think decision makers are divorced from because they're sitting on high looking at ideas saying yes, no. And they don't know, they don't have interactions with the teams themselves usually or the individuals whose ideas they're choosing. And they're not part of that creative process. And that's really stressful. That's phenomenally stressful. And if I were in that position, I wouldn't want to choose a creative idea. Why would I ever want to do that? There's no upside to me personally. And also, you know, there might not be upside in the company because it creates anxiety around the company because right. everybody wants you to choose something that where they know their answer or they, they feel like it's a good, correct decision. So, you know, I, I've started thinking that, you know, executives, they're, they're so, you know, self-interested, blah, blah, blah. They just want to, you know, justify their own decisions. And the more I got into it, I started to realize, oh my gosh, this is really about people managing just something like their stress and anxiety around creativity. Like creativity is making their life harder. And it's not that creativity is bad. It's that organizations want certainty and correctness. And that's just wrong-minded. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just not the reality. No, the I, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, if you think about it, the need to report quarterly and to show growth and, and all of that is just so prohibitive to real growth and innovation. Because it's so short-minded, it's such short-term, and so if you're that CEO or, or anybody in that business, you you can only look to the near future, and by doing so, you are eliminating your ability to think larger. To what you're saying, I mean, nobody wants to follow the guy, even how confident he is, that says, "I don't know." You'd rather, I mean, I think human nature follow the guy that says, "Oh, I know, I definitely know. Of course, of course, I know." But it's also something that strikes at, you know, I think it creates a lot of pain and, and, I, and I think it creates a lot of um, feelings like, you know, first off, it's, it's a very hard position to be in because often, unless you do know, sometimes if you actually do know the answers, sometimes if this happens, if you're the autocrat, but you're benevolent, and you do know the answers, you know, Groups can still thrive because you actually knew the correct answers. You know, that's true. The problem is that that's very, very, very rare. And most of the time they don't know the answers. And you're only as good as your autocratic leader when you have autocrats in play, mm. you know. So um, it's, so where I go with this is part of what I'm hoping we can start talking about and having a dialogue about is the kind of confidence we're looking for and we can feel comfortable with that, you know, somebody saying, I don't know, that's actually a very confident thing to do. It might yeah. be the most yeah. confident thing to do, although it doesn't evoke confidence from others. Let me explain to you the psychology, the psychological backstory Please to this, do. because there's a very deep one and it has to do with stereotypes. So it turns out that sometimes the mere reason why we like something is it matches in our head our beliefs about the ideal. So people in the U.S. have had, um, since you know they've been studying this, an ideal leader. That leader is strong, masculine, tyrannical, charismatic. Um, sound like anybody, you know, mm, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and the problem is that that's the leader. Where did we learn this from? You know, that's the kind of leader that makes for a really good story. If you look in the history books, there are many, many different kinds of Kings, but you're more likely to hear about Alexander the great who had that exact kind of a, of, of, of a, of a persona, or, you know, Hitler, you know, or these other kind of leaders that are very interesting. Um, and so we've developed, and our stories like, you know, The Sopranos and Wolf of Wall Street, we see these leaders, examples of these leaders, because they're so interesting to us. But what it does is it gives us this template. And that's what we're looking for in our leaders, because it turns out that when a leader matches that template, we feel safe. We feel like, oh, match, click, safe. It's, it's not something we think about. It's more automatic than knee-jerk. You know, I do. And yeah. what I argue in the book is I say, look, you know, that view is kind of archaic. It's kind of like it's from the 19. It's from an earlier time in our history. Mm -hmm. And and we need to start being recognizing that we have that kind of problem. It's kind of like when you're dating and you like the bad boy, you know, <laughs> and then you realize when you grow up, you're like, um, 
<laughs> this isn't the person I want to marry. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's like we need to, 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 to just learn that we're looking for confidence is great and we're looking for somebody who's competent and careful, but also somebody who can ask questions, who's compassionate. And it's that kind of a leader that I think is better suited to manage multiple different kinds of people with diverse interests and bring them together. And so that would be the leader who is more successful in creative change. Uh, yes, I think it, this is a complicated topic because it is true. We have seen the Steve Jobs of the world who were autocrats and who basically forced their vision and edited, but they were right. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, yeah. Like they were right. Um, but more often than not, you don't see that. More often than not, there's another way to go. And that's the person who can bring the groups together and to create something better than they had before. I think this is more of what they do at IDEO. So IDEO has this whole team-based design thinking initiative, and they work really hard to, to create this kind of a team. They care about the process. They're all about focused chaos, the focus meaning the, the process itself. And that's how for them creativity emerges. They don't know the answer. They don't know what the product's going to look like when they first start out. Nobody does. Nobody says that, but what they do know and they feel very confident in is exactly what they're going to do the first moment they start to solve that problem and the next and the next and the next and the next because they have a process. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Do you love books but find that you never have the time to read them? With Audible, get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read on the go. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. With Audible, you own your books so you can access your books anytime and anywhere right from your smartphone. Audible also has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title, anytime, no questions asked. Audible is absolutely fantastic. There's so many books that I want to read but just don't have the time. So on Audible, you can listen to Start With Why, Smarter, Faster, Better, and Radical Candor. Turn walking the dog into the biggest adventure of the day. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. Turn your walk into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com slash smart to start now. That's audible.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Yeah, it actually reminds me of a story I heard about Saturday Night Live and the way that they create. And it's very structured. It's structured mm. creativity in the sense that I don't remember all of the nuances, but you know, you have to speak and nobody can say certain things at certain times and all this because you have to create an environment in which you feel free, completely free to say almost anything in the hopes of creating some of the skits that, I mean, God knows where they came from. Yeah. And that's why when I say, you know, leaders being confident in the process, it's that kind of leader that can get to that Saturday Night Live or that IDEO. Right. You know, um, there, like I said, there are some leaders, there are the Steve Jobs of the world who really have an eye, have a, have a knack for understanding their consumer. Um, I mean, not all the time he had next, he had right. some failures, right? right? <laughs> um, and, but that's just it. You know, if he hadn't had that one great vision, he would have been a has-been. Yeah. Oh, well, and I actually have said before, I think that, and I'm sure I'm not the first to say this, but I think when Steve Jobs said, oftentimes people don't know what they want until you tell them, it's almost difficult because I think he put a lot of false hope in to people that say, no, 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 I know people don't like my idea yet or aren't purchasing my product or mm. our business is failing, but that's mm. because they don't know yet. And sometimes you just need to be able to look at them and go, yeah, well, you're not Steve Jobs. I'm sorry. But I, I, I have a, I, I, a, a, well, a slightly different interpretation yeah. or a way of thinking about that. Let's do and, it. And the way I have a thinking about <laughs> that is that the, the, what Steve Jobs meant was that, I think, was that the average consumer is so anchored in their perspective about the product that they have. And all they're thinking about is not creative change, but I want a faster 
iPhone. I want a smaller iPhone. I want a pink iPhone, you know, and they're not thinking about this other thing, like, you know, the chip in their eyeball that, you know, <laughs> they're, not, sure. they're not thinking about that because they're focusing on the product right in front of them. Mm. I mean, I think Henry Ford said, if I asked the customer what kind of, what, what they wanted, they would tell me a faster horse right, right before he made the automobile. So I think that where. So that's so. What it means is that when you're coming up with the radical, crazy idea, the customer's not going to be able to do that. But what the customer can do is, once you have that radical, crazy idea, you sit the customer down, and that's when you say, "What do you think now?" And that's where you can use design thinking to make it work. So in some ways, it's just a matter of when the creativity is coming in. At the very the, the germ of the idea, you're probably not going to get from your customer. That's that breakthrough, crazy way of doing something no one's thought of before. It's not really the customer doesn't know how to think in a creative way. They're not trained. That's not their thing. Um, but they are. They do know how to make it work. Wow, I have to admit, oh yeah, you have creatively changed my view on that (laughs) topic. No, I I really, I understand what you're saying. The other side of it is, it's true that sometimes people, great ideas do fail. They just do. And it's not because your idea isn't great. It's just because the the timing was wrong or it didn't, people like that that familiar enough. It's why in the book I talk about analogies, how you can make the right kind of analogies to things. I think the iPod worked because MP3 players and Mm -hmm. cassette players were the analogy that were accessible to people. Mm-hmm. I think the iPad, if there was an analogy or algorithm in people's minds where they could make that quick analogy, I think it would have been successful too. But I just, I don't know what it was. And, and that could have been the disconnect. So when people are trying to figure out, okay, is my product ready? The, the way to know that is, is there an analogy out there that fits, you know, that clicks yeah. in people's minds and helps them go, oh, that's what it is. Like, for example, Star Wars, um, wasn't pitched very well the first time, rejected by United Artists, and they compared it to, to the, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is like a psychological thriller with angst, like, you know. And, you know, one thing that they could have done initially when they pitched Star Wars is to compare it to other kinds of movies more similar to Star Wars. Even though it was sci-fi, it didn't look like sci-fi, like 2001. It looked like a Western. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? So it was like high noon in space. And and pitching it like that would have helped it click in people's minds in a way to which they were like, oh, it's similar enough. It has the same. But the differences are kind of cool, not weird. Let's say we are a small business owner, an entrepreneur, solopreneur, whatever it is. And we we get this, but we want to unblock this bias. What are some ways we can be more creative. We can open ourselves up to this, which I actually believe is a evolutionary flaw almost because we, we do push back on change. We want certainty in a lot of instances, or at least we feel we want it. So mm-hmm. how do we generate those new ideas that we say we like? Hmm. Um, there's... The, the generation, I, I don't cover the generation part in my book because I cover the recognition part, but, but let me tell you how the recognition part helps. So part, the barrier here, the barrier that people are fighting against that they might not realize they have is their perspective, the way they're framing the problem, what they think the problem is. And so for example, if you're designing a table and you want to design a creative table, you're going to have a table that you sit at normally in your mind when you think of table. And that's going to anchor you. There's going to be some features that you're all, you just, just, well, will will just use because that's what you're used to seeing. And that's what you associate a table with. You won't put it on the ceiling. You know what I mean? Right. You won't, um, you know, make the, the legs spread out to the side or, you know, you know, wobble in, in up towards the ceiling itself. I mean, that's, these are not the kinds of things you're immediately going to think about. And so, you know, the generation side of things is to learning how to break that perspective. But the, 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 even if you generate that idea, this, the creative change part is when you can say, Ooh, that's the one I want to work towards, the, the new idea. And what I see entrepreneurs doing is they'll generate a bunch of ideas and, you know, they'll tell their friends and their friends will be like, oh, that's horrible. Don't go do that. And they throw out some really, really great ideas. 
And so what I'd recommend that they do instead, instead of saying, of having their friends say, oh, that sucks, start to ask questions. What do you think about this? Why does it suck? How, how could it make, provide value? What, what, what do you think the problem is that we're trying to solve? And what this does though, is it creates kind of this dynamic. So the how best mindset, this mindset that wants accurate and correct decisions, it wants to know about constraints and feasibility and who's going to use it and, and, you know, regulations and all kinds of problems. And that's important to talk about, but also equally important is the value it brings, the problem it's solving, how many people it's going to influence in these kinds of questions that you can ask. And it's having that dialogue that can help you take maybe a solution or an idea that's limping along that doesn't have legs and turn it into something great. Okay. That last part, I want to know, because I think I got it, but reiterate for us how you take that idea that's limping along and make it into something great. Yeah. So the first part is to understand that as soon as you put your how best lens on the lens around having it being correct. Okay. That's the one I want to focus in on. Define the how best lens for us. The how best lens is, um, how do I implement this and make this work? And is it the best idea Uh, of of all the ideas I'm considering? Is it the one that uh, is best practice, is going to be received well by people? Um, And as soon as you go there, you've lost your ability to see value in anything new because anything new, you can't know if it's the best and because it hasn't been around and you don't know how to handle it. You don't know how to implement it. There's a million different implementation concerns to consider. That's just the way it goes. So I recognize you can be in that mindset and it can shut down your ability to see the actual value and the actual problem that you want to solve. And so one way to get yourself out of that is to pair yourself with somebody else or perhaps to engage in a dialogue with somebody else and start asking these higher order questions like, why is this solution important? What problem are you trying to solve? What's the potential that this solution could have? Um, and, and it's asking these broader level questions about value and about the problem you're trying to solve and the market you want to reach um, that can help you perhaps find out why it is that solution you have, how you can improve it and how you can make it better than what it was before. One of the things that reminds me of is I heard somebody say, If you come up with an idea and you start to dwell on the question, what happens if this fails? That's okay. Only if you also ask yourself, what happens if this succeeds? And that stuck with me because so often when you're creative, you think about worst case scenario. What if I put this money in and it doesn't go anywhere? My time is wasted. What will people think of me? And very rarely do you say, what if I put this money in and it far exceeds my expectations? It changes our business. It changes my life. It changes the world. And I think to some extent, there's a link to what you were saying there. I think so. I think that's in the motivation of, do you actually want to engage in this and go down this long road? But there's an even another step I would suggest, just in addition to what if I succeed, um, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? What is the value that this idea brings? And and thinking about the idea, because this is how you improve and refine it. And it's also how you can engage in a dialogue with others to kind of keep the dialogue going about it. Because what happens is sometimes we can just say, oh, this is too hard. You know, this novel thing. Let's go with the easier thing. Yeah. And sometimes that makes sense to do. But I would argue that what I see, the mistake I see people make is they they start down the path of looking at all of the, and to, your, to your point, of all of the ways it could fail, all the downsides, um, all the things they don't know, and they focus there and then they make a quick decision and it's over. And the way you know that you've exhausted it and you've done a good job trying to vet it is you've had a dialogue and you've not just talked about the bad stuff, but you also talked about the broader level of problems it's trying to solve, you know, who could this help? Why could it help them? What about it is really great? It's that dialogue too, that you have to have continuously about the idea before you know you've really exhausted it and you know it's just not the way to go or has potential. The, the question you're mentioning about what is the problem we're trying to solve, I really like that because I think that starts off as the reason for creative change or innovation. But once that question's answered the first time, it is no longer referred to. It's like, this is the problem we're solving. So 
here's our idea. And now let's iterate on that idea. But if you get a little bit down the road and you go, wait a second, wait a second, what's the problem we're trying to solve? It could take your thinking in a whole different way. And perhaps in a way that you're not as judgmental about what you've created thus far. And imagine if you were Henry Ford and the problem you were trying to solve is breed a faster horse. <laughs> That's how he could have framed that problem, right? It's very clear, very specific. Um, and, and that's why asking the question again and again, um, you know, could lead you down the path towards thinking, wait a minute, why does it need to be a horse? You know, why, why are we for, focusing on that? You know, and, and, you know, what are, what are some other solutions and other domains like, you know, that, that might be interesting to look at, you know, surfboards, I don't know, whatever else, wagons. Um, so, and then you get to car and, and, and that's, I think what people miss is they think they have the problem all figured out. And so the solution is where they need to focus their time. But most of the time I find that they haven't figured the problem out. And what's interesting is that oftentimes your group you're in have different views of the problem and exploring those different views are sometimes how creativity happens because one person, for example, everybody says we want to be profitable, right? Well, your marketing person thinks, well, that means we advertise more. And your innovation person thinks, well, you know, that's because we're going to create a new product. And mm -hmm. your, your finance person says, well, we're going to cut costs. Um, and your production for person says we're going to diminish errors and, and increase, you know, efficiency. And so profitable means a totally different thing depending upon where you're coming from. So just saying we want to be profitable and that's the problem we want to solve is a horrible way to frame the question yeah. because there's such a deeper conversation to have there that can bring all kinds of new solutions to light. Oh, man. I am now invigorated to be creative. I got it because <laughs> I get stuck or I get pissed off or whatever. And I'm like, forget it. It's too hard. It's not whatever. And now if I just go back and say, wait a second, what's the problem we're trying to solve? In my mind, it brings a whole new level of excitement back to it because over that time period, I start to lose the reason we were doing it in the first place for all of the fears and anxieties and uncertainties that it has created. Yeah. And that's the reason why yeah. I wrote the book, because I saw people getting stuck and they were getting stuck in the selling it to other people and recognizing the value and keeping on, keeping on with this one idea that you might think is mm -hmm. dying, you know? And, and I wanted to write a book that would give them some solutions and some ideas about how to keep going and how to, and yes, it's hard to convince other people, but there are ways you can do it and it does happen. So talking about how to make it happen and starting that dialogue to me was really exciting and I hope it does help. Well, I think it is going to help. Again, the book is Creative Change, Why We Resist It, How We Can Embrace It. All right. Well, Jennifer, again, we really appreciate you being on the show. For our listeners, uh, please let us know. Obviously, we will link to the book Creative Change at smartpeoplepodcast.com and in this post. But you mentioned you write a lot elsewhere. So what's your website? Where do you write? Where can they find you? They can find me at Jennifer S. Mueller, that's spelled M-U-E-L-L-E-R.com. And on jenniferusmuller.com, um, I have a section where I talk about stories. And you know what I'm hoping is people will read the book and try out some of these solutions and then email me to say, hey, Jen, this worked really well. Or Jen, this didn't work at all. Let me tell you why it did not work. <laughs> Let me tell you how I would do it better. Uh, because I'll post them. I'll post your stories. And you can go there and read some. I've, I have a story there myself um, that happened to me um, that's using a solution of how to overcome the resistance to creative ideas. And the second place you can follow me is on Twitter, Jen S. Mueller, where I'll have examples of creative change that I see in the world. And it just helps illuminate like what creative change is and when we can recognize when it's happening. And because it helps solidify, you know, what it helps solidify how to do it when you have more examples about what it is. I, I actually, I think that's brilliant because I totally agree with you that it is kind of a murky topic. I mean, you, you get it when creative, okay, we got to be creative. We have to change in order to do so. But then when we really dove into it, I'm going, okay, I feel like it's getting a little bit more muddy. Um, and <laughs> the examples make it feel real and tangible in any walk of life, you know, CEO all the way down to the frontliner, to the, you know, entrepreneur, to the just individual. 
So I'm I'm really yeah. excited to see what you come up with there. Yeah, I think if you just hook into creative change and become aware of it, what's great when you become aware of it, then you'll have more control over your feelings because you'll know when you start to go, oh, that doesn't, you'll go, okay, wait a minute, get curious, take a deep breath, mm-hmm. look closer. What was that? And then it just allows to let that light in. Sure. Wow, that's great. And that's the goal. All right, Jennifer. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed it. And have a great weekend. Yes, you too. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jennifer Mueller. Her book, Creative Change, Why We Resist It, How We Can Embrace It, can be found at your local bookstore or on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please make sure to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review over there and subscribe if you haven't done so already. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. If you ever find yourself wondering what's going on over at Smart People Podcast, you can head over to the website, SmartPeoplePodcast.com, and subscribe to the newsletter there. As always, we've got some great interviews coming up, so we'll see you all next episode.